Thank you, Grant, for putting to music this great privilege we have of taking this message of the everlasting gospel to all the world. Indeed, friends, may this time of reflection be a recommitment to that amazing privilege. Let's pray. Lord, we're gathering via the internet, most of us in homes, but we're still looking, Lord, for you to speak. Most of all, we need you to speak now. As uncertainty has gripped our world, as instability has taken hold, we're praying that we would have confidence as we hide in the rock, stand on the rock. Please bless us now. Help us to make the changes that you're calling us to make so that we could have the joy as we move forward to the finish. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to welcome you to Village Church this morning. I'm preaching a message entitled, Who Moved the Cheese? Confidence in Crisis. I want to once again remind you that come uh, beginning June 12, I believe it is, we will begin a local camp meeting here entitled Forward to the Finish. We'll have a variety of speakers, seminars through the day, an early morning message, and some wonderful music and encouragement. So if your conference is not having a camp meeting and you're available during those times, we'll go from June 20 to June 12 with a theme forward to the finish. This morning, though, in the seventh in a series entitled Confidence in Crisis, I want to talk with you about change. Back in 1998, Dr. Spencer Johnson wrote a book entitled Who Moved My Cheese? It became a number one bestseller. As a matter of fact, it stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for almost five years. 26 million copies sold, 37 languages. The story of two men or two little people and two mice and how do they relate to change. Coming each day to where they would get their cheese, finding it gone, what has to become now is a new way of adapting. And adaptation is indeed the subject matter for this morning. How are we going to be on the other side of COVID-19? Are we going to remain the same? Are we simply hoping for things to go back to normal so that we can go back to what we were? Indeed, God allows crises to come. And in the midst of the crises, he's working for transformation of purpose, of soul, of character. Who moved my cheese? All throughout our lives, we're going to have, find ourselves in moments of adaptation. This morning, I'm going to bring to you 10 things that I believe should be different when the shelter-in-place rules are over. I'm not going to address social distancing and masks. We'll do our part to keep the spread of disease from going forward. Some churches have actually opened across this North American division on this Sabbath. I know our former associate, Joe Reeves, has a church in Idaho that was opening back up this morning. I don't know when Village will open back up. Here in Michigan, we're going at least through May 28. And after that, by God's grace, we'll be able to have some kind of interaction. And so hopefully, when our camp meeting forward to the finish is underway, we'll be at least able to have a small audience, if not a large one. But we're hoping that our online audience will be edified as we break the bread of life and consider how our corporate and individual lives should be focused to accomplishing God's work. Number one, I'm going to start with what I consider probably to be the most preeminent Seventh-day Adventist spiritual disease. It's a disease that stands in the way of healing most of the other challenges we have spiritually. I've spoken about it multiple times. It's probably not a discourse without it. But I'm going to speak to it again because I believe in this moment where we cannot gather, we ought to reassess and reapprise the privilege of gathering, which you remember God says should happen all the more so as we see the day approaching. Take your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. How did God start over after the cross? Acts chapter 2. There was a crisis of faith. There was a challenge to the established way of thinking in regards to what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. Judaism was turned upside down as Jesus came 
to represent the Father. The cross was not what the apostles had in mind. They didn't even like each other on Thursday night when they left the upper room. James and John conniving to be at the left and the right-hand position through their mother, an elder as it were, at least in age, one to whom a request would typically be honored. And they were working to leverage their way into positions of ambition through their mom. Yes, indeed, Peter was a little bit miffed with Jesus as well, who had told him some things about himself that he didn't agree with and he flat out denied. Unfortunately, the bearing of their souls would be the experience of the next 24 hours. And here we come on the flip side, on the other side of the cross, and what is Jesus directing them to do? Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and Acts chapter 1. We'll start with Acts chapter 1 first, beginning with verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit will be not many days from now. And then over to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, and was fully come. They were all in one accord, in one place. Now I'm going to put two things together. The great spiritual bad habit that has settled down upon Seventh-day Adventists is the habit of not gathering. Whether it be a camp meeting gathering, whether it be a spiritual convocation, whether it be an evangelistic event, whether it be a prayer meeting, the first thing that will have to change if we're going to be ready for what's coming next which we don't know at what frequency the birth pangs will continue to roll upon us. But one thing that will have to change is we are going to have to get closer to each other. We barely know each other. Now you say, I come from a little church. I, I know more than I want to know about the people I go to church with. We must come to know each other in Christ. There must be this growing love for each other. The, first, the second thing is that we're going to have to look for the power and the provision, the active administration of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to put our best minds around our best challenges. It's another thing to run straight into a COVID-19 crisis and know that the Christ who led you up to it can lead you through it and you can surmount it in his name. It's not for us to just add a little bow on our meetings of a short prayer. It's time for us to actually start seeking the Lord more earnestly. I know in our local church school, we're creating a revisioning uh, committee. It's time for us to assess what it means to be discipling our kids for the hours we have them in our local schools. It's actually time for us to be as a church asking, are we really achieving the fullness of our obligation when we simply gather week by week? God is wanting to give us the assurance of his presence through the Holy Spirit, and he's wanting us to have the confidence to move forward in spite of obstacle. But in order to do that, we're going to have to be more bonded and more corporately dependent upon the voice of God speaking through the experience of the group. Board meetings go hard sometimes because we don't like each other. Sometimes they go hard because we come from different points of perspective and we don't know how to show respect to each other in a committee meeting. I'll tell you what, when the emotions of a group are all running the right way, they can handle some pretty difficult discussions without coming away broken and bruised. It's important, friends. Why don't you go to the prayer meeting? Ask yourself the question. If the spirit of prophecy can write, we, ought, we should be where prayer, ought, where prayer is want to be made, why are we wanting there? Yes, this is the preeminent Seventh-day Adventist corporate bad habit. And we have relegated the meetings for spiritual progress to being for the old and the less busy with less important things to do. If you come out of this COVID-19 moment and you're content to keep pressing on without that which will fill you up with strength for what's coming before you, you're missing out on the blessing of divine confidence. You're missing out on the brotherhood and the sisterhood of divine support flowing from a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. It is not for us to rush into our meetings without leaning on the Lord and without being able to lean on each other. 
Why don't you go to the evangelistic meeting? Preacher not exciting enough? Slides not up to date? What is it that you've got going on that's more important than praying for the person who's presenting and asking God to show you something new about the diamond of prophecy which is turning in another presenter's hands, waiting for you to learn something you haven't learned before, be touched in a way you haven't been touched before. There are blessings that God is preserving and reserving for those who care enough to come to his house. Be like me as, my, as I anticipate a wedding for one of my children, sending out invitations. Isn't there a parable like this? And all I'm asking for is the honor of your presence. But you've got this excuse and that excuse. Yes, friends, when COVID-19 ends, we ought to be in the house of God making up for our absence and seeing what God might do to kindle a fire amongst us. I can remember as a boy when I was in Pathfinders getting a fire building honor, I believe, filling out some of my card work to become at some level invested in a new qualification as a Pathfinder. And you know, one of my challenges was to build a fire in the rain. And there was a quiz question. And the quiz question about building a fire in the rain is, where is the wood always dry? The answer, on the inside of the tree. There are things inside of us that if they were collected together and the Holy Spirit came down, things that would be drawn out in human relationships, actual spiritual bonds built, intimacy, that if they were all collected together, the presence of God could light a fire, bring warmth and light and courage. But when we don't come together and when we don't seek the Spirit, we're weak. God is calling every leader of every classroom, every school, every institution, every church, every pair of ministry to take more time praying and connecting, but certainly he's calling his people to his house. So item number one, we're going to have to get close. You're going to have to get together to press together. Item number two, we're going to have to seek the Lord and wait for the gift of promise. We're going to have to seek divine assistance to achieve our goals. Obviously, there's going to be a little bit less money, it appears, although my prayer is this will be our best financial year we've ever had in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Join me in it, would you? But we're going to find new obstacles. We're going to need new power. The third thing that's going to have to change is that God's preachers are going to have to become true preachers of righteousness. And this is not me throwing down a quick or calloused or cavalier critique of my brothers and my sisters. This is me calling the man or woman of God called to preach the word of God, to preach the full spectrum of what God brings out of his word and puts onto their heart. We find ourselves in a unique day in which the corporate Christian world wants to be smothered with assurance that I'm okay and you're okay. And you know what? God brings us something better than that. God brings us the assurance that when we're in Christ, nothing can shake us. His presence is with us. His love is upon us. But that love is, is not the kind of love that overlooks the journey of growth. If you've read the book of Corinthians, you understand. Paul loved them deeply. As a matter of fact, his writing to the Corinthians drew out the deepest risk of his pastoral bond of probably any book. Take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to look at Paul's musing about his role. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, reflecting on his first letter. He says, beginning in verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I want every pastor listening to me to hear these words. You read the New Testament. It's a constant call to walk worthy, quoting Paul himself, to imitate me, Paul will say, as I imitate Christ. And Paul says, some of the things I said wounded you, and I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. In other words, as he laid his pastoral heart out on the table for the people, 
as he took the emotional risk that comes with redirecting the hearts and the corporate experience of God's people, he felt like maybe he had gone too far. But that's not what happened. Verse 9, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Take your Bible and turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Go just a bit farther. Again, Paul confronting grave theological dynamics in this church where they're abandoning a confidence in Christ and replacing it with a confidence in men. He writes, so have I become your enemy, Galatians 4, 16, by telling you the truth. It's important that we let the preachers be the preachers. The Holy Spirit comes to your life. He starts talking to you. You don't have to have a preacher to have God talk to you. What the preacher does is the preacher becomes God's amplification system. He's talking to everybody and nobody all at the same time. It's the most dignified place for God to deepen a conviction of anywhere you can go. It's not one-on-one -on -one where the message is laid directly on you with, with no possibility for it going somewhere else. It's God in the presence of the spoken word deepening a conviction through the audible voice of the preacher. Now I bring to you this word from Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints of marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How would you like to wield a weapon like that? God is working through his word, being held in the hand of a preacher, being pronounced by the hand of a pastor. And how would you like to be the one that's cutting away the spiritual tumors, that's going deep down to the motivational level? How would you like to be the one that someone blames for upsetting the status quo in the spiritual equilibrium of their lives? You see, the real price tag on pastoral ministry and the preaching ministry and the prophetic ministry is that the preacher is sometimes accused of being not God, but a demagogue who got the lens twisted and messed up the message. This is why when Elijah and Ahab meet after three and a half years of no rain, Elijah will say to, or Ahab will say to Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah will respond back, it's not me who troubled Israel, but you. That battle's not gone, and it's not going away. But if the preacher runs away from that moment, the eternal salvation of those who could have known an opportunity to change was upon them is gone. Indeed, when Elijah kneels down in front of those 850 prophets and he prays, his prayer is very simple. God, show them that I've done this at your command and that you are God. That very same confidence must be in the heart of every pastor who stands in a pulpit to preach, who has prayerfully come to the moment, who is in God's Word, whose life is not a contradiction of his preaching or her preaching. Indeed, we must have men and women who proclaim the truth and understand that spiritual cancers will require a spiritual operation. And thus, yes, they should apply the anesthesia of God's love. But have you ever seen somebody who has a growth and it can't be hidden? Is it beautiful? Maybe there's a reason that the postmodern world has said we're not too interested in organized religion. Maybe we've gone so far in patting ourselves on the back and giving each other spiritual hugs that spiritual tumors are growing on us and we don't look quite as beautiful to the world as we think we look to each other. Indeed, if God's word can cut to the joints in the marrow and is a discerner of the intents of the heart, it might be that it's uncomfortable to sit under the power of the presence of the living word brought to life by the Holy Spirit, audibly and powerfully communicated by a preacher. False prophets in days gone by told the king what he wanted to hear. Customer is king now. And if they don't like what they hear, they'll take their money and walk. And this is every preacher's fear. That if they follow their convictions 
Every preacher has enough self-doubt, at least I hope most do, the honest ones do, but they're worried that they'll mess it up. They know where the pats of affirmation come from, and in the fragility of person, they sometimes mistake failure for success. The masses and the multitude as the certainty that they've done what's right, when in reality they forget that Jesus himself had the masses abandon him, and he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? Preacher, if you can't keep your job and your convictions at the same time, know which one you have to let go of. But don't let go of it until someone asks you to. Because it may be that success is just around the corner and that nobody has stood up to that person in your church who is disfiguring the culture and the presentation. You can't live with fear and do your job the right way. When Paul in Acts chapter 20 comes to the end of his time with the Ephesians, he said, I'm free of the blood of all men. I've declared to you the whole truth. Now we know that Jesus told his disciples that there were some that weren't ready to hear everything. And of course, this is not me suggesting that you're supposed to dump something on somebody. But when you refuse to exercise God's divine prerogative to let the word do its work, you're standing in the way of progress and change for God's people. The cutting truths should be anesthetized with the comforting ones. The cross should be the picture frame in which all presentations are made. But when you allow a whole group of people or a individual, especially a leader, to go forward without addressing what is an obvious spiritual disfigurement, you become partially responsible for the dysfunction of the individual or the group. You should pray for your pastors. They have extremely difficult jobs because they are constantly trying to process how much should they lean on a problem? How hard should they seek to help something change or grow? When should they speak up and when should they be quiet? The fourth thing that'll have to change if we want to see our church come back to life is that parents are going to have to join the pastors and start pastoring their own homes. It's going to be important that their children are their first little flock and they're not afraid to do what they need to do to raise their children. It doesn't matter what the people down the road are doing. It doesn't matter what the people down the pew are doing. The truth of the matter is your children are walking through a spiritual death zone. There are temptations all around them that didn't exist when you were being discipled into Christ. And it's not your job to be the one everybody praises, even your own children. Do a step better than that. Love your kids and make sure they know that so when they are struggling to form their own identity in Christ, they know there's a rock and the rock's not moving. They can come under the shade of your tree, your married love. If you're a single parent, keep your courage. But nonetheless, Jesus confronted his own disciples. He is the ultimate parent in Scripture. I read something that troubled me this week. I was searching through one of the Ellen White databases looking for some information, and I came across a letter she wrote to Battle Creek. If you're living in Bering Springs today, if you're living in an Adventist Mecca somewhere else, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. She knew the perils and the pitfalls of gathering God's people together with too much focus on themselves and too little emphasis on reaching the lost. And she used a phrase that I wasn't aware that she used 100 plus years ago. She talked about gospel-hardened youth. They're around so much religion, sometimes hypocrisy. They're around the church without being around the lost in an effort to reach them. And soon there's a callus that grows on their heart. They can see what's wrong with the church from the inside, but it's hard for them to see the love of Christ because they're not far enough away from this conglomeration of the saints. Gospel-hardened children, it makes me think of Ken DeCreasy's book, Almost Christian. I can see the picture in my mind as I'm standing here right now of a teenager in a green hoodie pulled up around his face where it's hard to see it, and he's looking down at his device. Almost Christian is not going to work if you want to be a complete family in heaven. 
Yes, there should be a family altar in your home. You should say, I I have time for the most important things, and the most important thing at the beginning of my day for the entire family will be gathering my family together for a brief and beautiful and vitalized encounter with God. It may be as simple as a song and a story. It may be as simple as a pre-prepared devotional reading, but it is a tradition that will allow the presence of God to slowly infiltrate the mind, the habit, and the heart of your young person. Yes, parents are going to have to be the ones that do the first forming so that the teachers can come alongside of them and so that our children can actually encounter the living Christ and be prepared to share a message to a world that is dying. But for them to encounter a form of godliness that denies the power is to gospel-harden this generation every bit as much as that of Battle Creek 100 years ago. Yes, indeed, parents will have to be, as God ordained them to be, the very first pastors. The fifth thing that ought to be different when we come out of this moment is the dynamic of leadership. My wife told me a story the other day. This leadership is to be pastoral and principal and biblical. It is not to be political and representative. It is to be judicious and prudent and thoughtful. It is to find its wisdom through more than one individual in the Word, collecting the precepts and the principles of holiness and acting on the ability to shape the larger culture of the larger church. Yes, leaders are going to have to do what so many today are unwilling to do. I heard a story just yesterday. Young educator with an administrative gift. Story takes place several years ago. Was being courted for a prominent position in administration in one of our larger elementary schools. Woman came and interviewed. In the course of the interview, she learned several things about that institution. She learned that they did not gather the children for corporate worship. She learned that the staff did not gather for staff worship. She learned along the way that there was an organized sports program that everyone gathered for, at least many. And at the end of the interview, she told the interviewing body, you have the wrong person. This is not what I gave my heart for. This is not what I've dedicated my talents to. And she left. Not long later, there was an interaction between her and that body, and they explained to her she was exactly what they wanted. But her coming meant that the culture of that elementary school, large though it be, was going to be changing. You see, friends, when leaders do not follow their convictions, pastor, teacher, administrator, when they do not have convictions, They are actually standing in the way of spiritual progress and hoping everything will simply go back to where it once was. Jesus said it is the truth that sets us free. And if we think if Seventh-day Adventism can't wander off course, we better think again. The sixth thing that's going to need to change is that our commitments are going to have to change. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's not just the kingdom of God in your heart, and it's not just the kingdom of God in your home, although those things are starting points. But progressing on from there, there is an actual physical representation of his kingdom, and it's called the church. Our schedules are going to have to change. God has stepped on the brake. They've changed already, haven't they? Some of you are actually more busy because everything you do has multiple layers of communication in it, including a Zoom meeting that you, you didn't have before. It's amazing how efficient ideas can flow and learning can take place. My wife is an elementary school teacher. I can tell you she's busier now without having the kids in her classroom than she was when she had them all there. Our time commitments have changed. Our freedom to move about has changed. How we attire ourselves, including the mask, has changed. How close we can get to each other has changed. Our commitments are going to have to change, which means our schedule. Some people don't have a schedule. That's why in their home there is no family worship. 
That's why everybody goes, goes and does what they want and there's no gathering at a meal table. That's why there's nobody at the prayer meeting. When, when, I can remember when first coming to this village church. It was a church of just under 1,000 members. 1% of the membership attended prayer meeting. 1%. And the first prayer meeting I went to, which was in a little bitty room in this church, one of the faithful prayer meeting attenders was rejoicing that we had made it to 1%. He didn't say it that way. I think we had 12 people there. Do you actually think that if we're so careless about gathering together and making a priority in our schedule of being in God's house, do you really think God's going to step in and do anything terribly fantastic if we don't care any more than that? And you say, oh, pastor, I'm so busy. Yes, I know that Faithful Seventh-day Adventists of generations ago were busy too when they had to do their wash by hands and they didn't have an automated machine. I know they were busy when they worked in the coal mines in the morning and on the farm till dark. Yes, they were busy. Before there were microwaves and cell phones and all the things that create freedom, comfort, and ease. They were busy. Now we're busy too. We're busy with what we call enriching things. We don't want our children to fall behind, so it doesn't matter whether it's music or sports or some other extracurricular activity. Our lives have filled up so much that uh, we're gonna look out for our family first, and that means we're not gonna clutter the schedule with the things that will get in the way that we don't deem give us as a family what we need most. I want you to know when God re-covenanted with Israel, he called everybody together, including the mothers and the children. And God is calling us, as in generations gone by, to begin acculturating our kids' mental appetites to being able to sit in a meeting and hear the word of God and not be bored out of the gourd. Now, there's two things that need to happen. The people running the meeting need to make sure that it's alive with the Spirit and it's not boring in and of its own self. And the parents are going to have to make sure that the mental food of their children's minds is not the tantalizing stimulation, the superficial junk food that gets them out of the parents' way and sows the seeds of self-destruction by weaving the appetites of the mind around the things of the world. Indeed, People are the most interesting thing in the world. And if our people were coming together and our schedules were prioritizing togetherness, we'd discover that the stories he has to share or she has to share across the generations and the joy of forming a new family would be better than the superficialities of devices and dark corners. Our appointments are going to have to be prioritized. Yes, you should have family worship, I've said that. Yes, you should make time as a couple, I've said that too. Or I'm saying it now. But yes, you should bring your family and you should be in the spiritual convocations of your local church. And if your kids are the only kids, it's okay. God will make up for it. It's important that we simplify our lives. There's some good things on your schedule they're gonna need to go. They're not as important. And some of them, after enough time goes by, you're going to see we're actually in the way. I make no apologies to my children about the simplicity of our home, without a television, without the video games, but I made provision for them to experience life in the out of doors. I gave them something better to do. I did it with them. I taught them how to work. I gave them the satisfaction of improving their world. Some of us are going to have to make new adjustments in our commitments with our money. You say, I don't have much. That has nothing to do with what God is saying. He won't ask for more from you than it's proper for you to give. And some of you are waiting to get more before you give more. God actually does it in reverse. He calls us to give more before you get more from Him. As it stands right now, there are dozens of church schools that are waiting to be shuttered 
as a function of COVID-19 around this division? What are we going to do to stave that off? As it stands right now, there are all kinds of people being furloughed because of COVID-19. Is it really true that God's work will have to be pruned down smaller than it already is? Or is it possible that there are things that ought to be called and cut out of our ledgers so that God's work can go forward? When we think about the giving habits of Seventh-day Adventism, by percent, more was given during the Great Depression than is given now. And on the other side of COVID-19, that should be different. You may not take his night of vacation. You may not shop for your clothes there. You may make your car last longer. I don't know what it'll be because I'm not God. I don't understand your circumstances. But I know this, our commitments must change if we really believe that this is a birth pang of deliverance and more are on their way. If this is a wake-up call to come back to our purpose and our identity in Christ, then it is important for us to move on our time, on our schedule, on our appointments, in the simplification of our life, in our habits, and in our money. This is easy to say and hard to do, but the freedom that comes in doing it is phenomenal. Change your giving to God and let your habits adapt around it. That's how you move. Change your giving to God and let the rest form itself around that priority. When I had nothing as a boy, I was taught the principles of stewardship. When I met my wife and we got married, with two years of undergraduate college still to go, we were making $400 a month. That was 30-some years ago. Whatever multiplication you want to put on it now, put on it. But it was a fraction of what people needed to live back then. I decided that I would be faithful in returning God's tithe because it wasn't mine to be messed with. And we decided as a couple that 5% of our income, which was $400 income a month, would be returned to God as an offering. I am so glad that when I had next to nothing, I chose to do something with it that would train me for doing something with more. God provided for us a little home at $75 a month, which was about a third or a fourth of what others were paid. We had a little wood stove, and I scrounged for wood. I worked on the grounds department at Andrews University. The house was so small, it had been a cow barn before it was converted into a home, and it had big wooden beams going across it that I had to duck my head to walk through the living room and I couldn't stand up straight in the one room that was up above. It would be like living in somebody's mini barn. That place was God's provision for me. And what I was learning all along the way is that when I put God first, God will make sure to take care of my needs. When I had very little, I made those decisions. The problem is there are people listening to me that have much and they've never made those decisions because what they have, they don't just like. They have a greater affection for than that. Which leads me to point number seven. Some divorce papers are going to have to be written. And no, I'm not talking about between husband and wife. I'm talking about between the church and the world. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you writing in Patriarchs and Prophets in the chapter entitled Apostasy at the Jordan. The author states it was by associating with idolaters and joining in their festivities that the Hebrews were led to transgress the law of God and being judgments upon themselves. So now it is by leading the followers of Christ to associate with the ungodly and unite in their amusements that Satan is the most successful in alluring them into sin. God requires of his people now as great a distinction from the world in customs, habits, and principles. As he required of Israel anciently, if they faithfully follow the teachings of his word, this distinction will exist. It cannot be otherwise. The warnings given to the Hebrews against assimilating with the heathen were not more direct or implicit 
explicit than are those forbidding Christians to conform to the spirit and customs of the ungodly. So let's break this down just a little bit. Could we do that? If it's by associating with idolaters and joining in their festivities that we are led to transgress, then maybe we ought to ask ourselves if we ought to be virtually attending all the same places. No, we are not going to show up there. But should we be virtually attending and virtually amusing over the same subject matter that the rest of the world is? Those sitcoms aren't funny to God. Those video games are addicting, especially to boys. Some of them are violent and vile. Spending hours on Facebook living vicariously through other people's lives is probably a waste of time. It can be used for good for sure, but it still could be a waste of time. The truth of the matter is, is that while some still will not attend a theater and some make it a badge of their Christian liberty that they can attend a theater, wasting God's money, wasting their time. God is calling us to redraw the lines. Come ye apart and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now, we don't want to be a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, there's one of those youth songs that says, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. And of course, it was the Pharisees who, after mingling out amongst the publicans, would ritually cleanse themselves That's what those water pots were that Jesus turned to wine. Somehow they had taken the admonition to be separate from the world and they forgot that they were actually supposed to love the world even though they were to be separate from the world and Jesus had to bring it back together. But we've gone so far the other way that it appears we have no impact on the world. And what's worse than that, our appetites are binding us to the world and without the power of God being able to separate us from it we find ourselves coming into a greater conformity to the world. And while the world doesn't complain about us, our love for the world is doing nothing to set us free and prepare us for our heavenly citizenship. So how should we relate to the world? This is what she says. The followers of Christ are to separate themselves from sinners, choosing their society only when there is opportunity to do them good. I want you to think about this. We choose the society of sinners only when there is an intent and an opportunity to bring them to Christ. Does that mean we don't practice the appeal of Jesus through the writer in Ministry of Healing that says we should mingle and minister and win confidence and then bid them follow? Christ practiced this. But when we find ourselves laughing at the same things, mesmerized by the same things, it's absolutely imperative upon us to be honest about the condition of our own heart. We don't mingle with those who don't love God except for the hope to bring them to God. So we shouldn't be doing it virtually either. Our television viewing, our video experience, Our online engagement with the world should be such as to protect us from a love for the world and we should not be at the same place as everybody else is at because we'll end up being just like everybody else. Come ye apart and be ye separate. Number eight, idols are going to have to be torn down. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation given to men except as common to men and that God will with the temptation provide a way of escape. The next verse says that we should flee idolatry. God is calling us to actually look into our hearts. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it tells us that the real challenge is the idols that are in the heart that are unseen. There's no Buddha in your stairwell, at least not for most of you that are listening. And you haven't tattooed the number of your God on your forearm like some in sub- Asia do. No, those are not the visible manifestations. The visible manifestations aren't quite so visible, but they're there. What do I love to think about? What do I love to talk about? Where's my real interest? God knows, and you could know, 
I was talking with Pastor Page this week. At one point in time, he had an addiction to alcohol. He was praying for deliverance, and wouldn't you know, some of the former ways of his life caught up with him, and he found himself incarcerated. He was in a jail. During that time of detoxification, God began deepening the beauty of his encounter with him and the convictions of his own heart to where eventually Pastor Page would pray, Lord, don't let me out till you've healed me till I'm ready. There actually came a moment in his experience when it looked like he was going to get out. But he started praying in earnest, Lord, don't let me out till I'm ready. And a moment which would seem like a great opportunity to press for liberty was actually a petition for continued imprisonment. Because inside the jail, God was giving him a new calibration of appetite of body and palate. How many young men are bound by digital addictions? Whether it's to violence or to gaming or to pornography. Women too. And how about sports in our world? There can be no doubt that for most men in America, especially in the last 50 years, leisure and money without the demands of work in a strong church have emptied the synagogues and the sanctuaries and filled the stadiums. And if not the stadiums, the virtual box seats on our devices. Knowing statistics and history about those that clash on the turf or on the wooden floor or on the ice and very little about practical godliness and the love of Christ described in Ephesians 5. Yes, idols will have to be torn down, perhaps fashioned for a woman or a man, pleasure-seeking, love of ease. These are all things that God is hoping to change in this moment. And if we don't give him permission, he won't force himself. Now, last two things. What we should expect. If you live like I'm talking, you can expect a whole lot less likes and thumbs up and a whole lot more thumbs down. We become so fragile, our personal sense of being so vacant that somebody's got to pat us on the back all the time. And we're more interested in how many people like us who don't even know us or barely know us than we are as to whether or not the words of Jesus would be well done, good and faithful sermon. Especially for you pastors and parents, you leaders, it's absolutely imperative that you understand the emotional challenge of leadership. This is why Edwin Friedman would write in his book, Failure of Nerve, the real leader is the one who can be able to separate himself from his feelings enough to endure the displeasure of the crowds. When you stand in this pulpit, when you sit in your little family powwow, when you're teaching in your classroom or administrating from your office in the boardroom, if you follow God down the road of convictions, you need to understand you will create problems. But the problems are the beginning of a deeper, better solution. Following God's will, if you follow Jesus, will bring you just what Jesus got. Don't think that I came to bring peace, he said. I came to bring a sword. The experience of Christ's ministry was one of great affirmation and the masses, it disappeared to nothing. Even his own disciples ran away from him. But on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the crucifixion, on the other side of the resurrection was a new beginning. It was a crisis that led to all kinds of opportunity and change, a new experience, looking at life through a different viewfinder. We need to start asking God to put peace in our heart because affirmation may not be about us. God can put the anchor in the soul, and that anchor in the soul is worth far more 
than the favor of men. The last thing we're called to do is to come back to the Bible. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is what Hosea wrote. We are the most biblically illiterate generation of Adventists to walk the face of the globe. I take no pleasure in saying it, but we're so busy dealing with other things, including the computers in our pockets. We've misprioritized so much that one of our AV team could say to me at the end of one of these messages, you need to think about preaching a series on our foundational beliefs. He's exactly right. But even if I did, it would not do for you what I'm talking about. God is calling each of us back to a realization of what a privilege it is to have our freedom, to read the Bible, to access all kinds of information. We barely go to church where we could learn so much about the Word of God. Jesus said they can see with their eyes, but they can't see with their hearts. And he's calling us to humble ourselves. Yes, the world has changed. The question will be, is has our spiritual experience? If the answer is no, the next lesson will be twice as hard. Shut the world down for two months and see if we can't stop God's church, shutter his schools, limit the institutions that were designed to prepare men and women to proclaim this glorious three angels message. Brothers and sisters, I'm appealing to you. The cheese has been moved. Change is upon us. If we stay the same, what a waste these last two months will have been. Whatever God is calling you to do, I'm appealing to you on behalf of your own soul's sake, on behalf of those who look to you for leadership, on behalf of the living Christ who shed his blood to save you and give you the kingdom, I'm appealing to you. Don't just wait for things to go back to normal. They're not. But may we go to a new spot with Christ, higher on the mountain, farther along the narrow road. We were praying two days ago as a staff. Pastor Michael prayed a prayer that's lodged in my mind. It's really at the essence of whether we go forward or go backwards. And he said, Lord, if we don't have faith, how can there be any miracles? I tell you, friends, bright days are ahead of this church. Jesus is a faithful and true redeemer, but he himself has moved the cheese, and he's seeking to awaken his church and revive us. May we follow him wherever he leads. May we choose to make him the role model of our life. May the principles and the precepts of how he lived be evidently seen in us. May the beauty of holiness shine through. And if we follow Jesus and we're just like him, the world will take notice and our lives will have power and our institutions will have power. This is what we're missing. May God help us to be just like Jesus.